part two of this COVID-19 edition of Shorewords. I'm Leslie Ewing, host of Shorewords, a podcast of coastal literature, the factual and fictional accounts that transport us toward the shore. Normally I talk with authors about their coastal writing and with coastal leaders about the tales and stories that inspired their chosen paths. This episode and the previous one are a bit different from those podcasts. These two episodes are my list of coastal books you might want to read while staying home during COVID-19. If you missed the first part of the list, you can either find it on ASPN or wait until the end of the podcast and I'll provide the whole list then. As I said in the earlier podcast, this is a quasi-alphabetical list. The books cover fiction and nonfiction. Some are well-known classics. Others might be books that will be new to you. I certainly hope that's the case for some of them. It'd be great if folks would add their favorites to this list. 19 is not a magic number, it just seemed like a good number in light of our reason for being homebound. I stopped the last list at The Perfect Storm by Sebastian Unger. And I'll start off this part of the list with another type of storm. The emotional storm that is central to Prince of Tides by Pat Conroy. The main story is about a deeply troubled family and a murder, but the story is set in the marshlands of South Carolina, and it's hard to imagine the book set anywhere else. It comes out of the Southern Gothic tradition, with people like writers like Faulkner, Carson McCuller, Flannery O'Connor, and Harper Lee. I grew up in Maryland. I went to college up north, and for a while I read pretty much only Southern authors as a part of my link to my Southern roots. Now, for me, those roots didn't become very deep, but I can still throw y'all, all y'all, and why bless your soul if I need to into the conversation and when it's needed. But I really like the writing of the Southern style. It seems to come out of living in that heat and humidity. And the Prince of Tides merges that tortured aspect of Southern Gothic with some of the isolation and hard living that comes with living in a fishing village in a small area in the coastal Carolinas. If you don't want to read the book, you can watch the movie. They've got Nick Nolte and Barbara Streisand, and much of it is set along the South Carolina coast, so you know it's going to be beautifully set. Next on my list is Remarkable Creatures, a historical fiction by Tracy Chevalier about two actual women, Mary Anning and Elizabeth Philpott. As with The Prince of Tides, a huge part of this story is the setting. For Remarkable Creatures, the setting is Lyme Regis along the southwestern coast of England. The coastal bluffs here are as much a character as the book as are the humans. There's a large tide range, and the bluffs erode easily. The real-life Mary Anning was a fossil hunter, and she regularly walked along this beach collecting fossils. Some of them were on the beach, and some she pulled out of the bluff where they had been trapped for many, many years. She taught herself geology, and both her finds and those of Elizabeth Philpott's helped lay the foundation for Darwin's theory of evolution. The Remarkable Creatures is fictional, but it's based upon the lives of two real women who made some major scientific contributions in a time when that really wasn't what women were expected to be doing. Now, for another woman who was doing things that weren't really expected in the time, 
I'm going to Sylvia Earle and Sea Change, A Message of the Oceans, which she wrote in 1995. Sylvia trained as a marine biologist and is now known as an ocean observer, oceanographer, and a passionate ocean conservationist. She deals with issues as a scientist, and her books are filled with facts and data about what we've been doing to the oceans through oil extraction, fishing for the top predators, seabed mining, and the vast amount of shipping traffic that's going on now. Sylvia, or her deepness as she is known by many, has written a number of books since Sea Change. Some are children's books, some for advocacy, and some as documentation. They're of course all about the ocean and all show her lifelong commitment to the ocean. But I think my favorite is still her first, Sea Change because it includes many personal stories of her infatuation with the creatures that inhabit over to 70% of our planet. And it's written from such a true voice of her passion and interest. It couldn't have been written by anyone but by Sylvia Earle. Next on my list is The Shipping News by Annie Prox. It's set in a small coastal community where the comings and goings of ships sets the pace of life in the community. And it was even an item in the newspaper. I might have included this in part because recently the arrival of the Grand Princess in Oakland was front page news. For those of you who don't recognize the name Grand Princess, this was one of the cruise ships where some of the passengers had contracted coronavirus. And the ship was brought to dock in the the Port of Oakland area, and then the passengers disembarked and were taken to quarantine and isolation areas. Now that was in early March, and I was still going into San Francisco every day for work. I could see the ship travel under the Bay Bridge from my office window. And then as I went home that night, I saw it anchored offshore from the port in Oakland. And perhaps those experiences lodged to my subconscious to long for a time when the arrival of ships was an exciting and joy-filled event. And that's what it is with the shipping news. The whole community revolves around shipping in the port. And that's also one of those intriguing times when our ocean port areas, our coastal port regions, were very much set up to revolve around the activities that were there. And that was the business of the coastal area and the business of that community entirely. So with shipping news, Annie Prost transports us to Newfoundland to meet the strongly individual characters that live on this wild coast and make a living from the shipping that goes on there. Songs for the Ocean, Encounters Along the Ocean Coast and Beneath the Sea, is a book by Carl Safina. It's somewhat like Sylvia Earle's Sea Change, and in fact, Sylvia even provided a review of his book for the back cover. Carl's a well-respected seabird researcher, who has traveled and spent much of his years on the water. Early in his career, he became a strong advocate for fisheries conservation, supporting a ban on drift net fishing and also efforts to try to limit the amount of overfishing that was going on with top marine species. And Songs for the Ocean is an account of some of his personal experiences as he traveled the world to do research linking together the changes to the ocean ecology with the changes in the communities and cultures whose lives depended upon the ocean 
for food and for income. The individual stories weave together into a book of both the threats to the ocean and the areas of hope that the ocean can recover, something I think we all need to read about these days. The idea of recovery as being useful and, and an important one. Now, thanks to the quirkiness of this list being alphabetical, I'm going to go for Songs to the Ocean to a series of mystery books by John MacDonald, where the feature character is a man named Travis McGee. Now, Travis McGee is a sal- was a salvage consultant who lived aboard his houseboat named The Busted Flush. There were 21 Travis McGee novels in all. All of those had a color in the name, like The Deep Blue Sea or The Dreaded Lemon Sky, and they were all set in southeast Florida. These books were probably some of the original only in Florida stories that later led to the books by Carl Hyacinth. They're quick reads, they're compelling whodunit stories that are perfect for a beach read or for a virtual beach read while we're still sipping or sheltering in place. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at thedunesciencegroup.com. The next book takes us from Florida to California, and from the 1960s to the 1830s. It's two years before the mass by William Henry Dana, and Dana Point in Southern California is named for him. In some ways, two years before the mass is a travelogue of California, set before the gold rush and statehood in the post-World War II building boom. Dana grew up in Boston and was going to Harvard when he developed some vision problems as a result of complication of measles. With his weak eyes, he felt he could not continue with his studies and decided that some time at sea would be curative. Ah, don't we all know those times at sea? So he signed on to be a sailor on a trading ship and traveled to California going around Cape Horn and along the coast of South America. Most of the coastal voyage was spent collecting hides from various ranchers and rancheros along the coastal California area, and then they were taken to the tanneries in San Diego to be cured. 
Dana was not the first person to see the California coast, but he was one of the first to write about it. Now, his book was published in 1840, and it became a must-have for all the folks who came to California nine years later as part of the gold rush. Years after that, William Henry Dana traveled again to California and wrote an epilogue to his book about all the changes since his voyage in the 1830s. Imagine what he would have had to say if he could come back now and see the many, many changes over the past 180 years. Lots of change for sure, but it's fun to read over some of his descriptions of coastal communities and look for some of the features that still do remain. Now, the next coastal classic is Waves and Beaches, The Dynamics of the Ocean's Surface by Willard Bascom. His book was first published in 1964, and it's been reissued several times since. I just checked on Amazon about availability of copies. They're pricey. It's about $100 for a hardcover and about $60 for a paperback. But you should be able to find copies in most libraries, certainly most university libraries or those with any sort of coastal program. In his career, Baskin was varied, multidisciplinary, multi-interested, apparently also very charismatic and adventurous. He headed up a project called the Moho Project that was to get samples of the crust and the boundary between the crust and the mantle. The easiest place to do that, because it's shallowest, is to do that in the ocean. Now, the drilling for that occurred off the coast of Southern California. But to do the drilling, Bascom had to come up with a system for dynamic positioning so that the ship could stay on point while drilling, not move around, which would have broken the drill bit or destroyed the ship. He also realized the importance of photographs and movies and used both to explain coastal dynamics. So Waves and Beaches is both a really great text for coastal dynamics. It also has a lot of great stories. Bascom had been doing ocean research and observing beaches for years. He worked a lot in California, but on other coasts around the world, so his book is rich with his experiences and observations. For the time when many of us cannot go to the beach, Waves and Beaches is a great virtual trip to the coast. And because it's such an informative book about how the coast works, it's also something that will help us observe the coast with new appreciation when we can next visit it in person. The 19th listing is a current popular fiction, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. Delia studied oceanog- zoology, sorry, not oceanography, and her first book was Cry the Kalahari. It's about African wildlife, mostly lions. I read it as a primer before my first trip to Africa. And then when my book group decided to read Where the Crawdads Sing, I had a vague recollection of having read something else by her, but it took me a while to put together her experiences in the Kalahari with the fiction set in coastal North Carolina. But Where the Crawdads Sing is a good book to read. It's a great coastal book, a great beach book, and interesting story as well. The protagonist is a young girl named Kia, who is a self-educated biologist. She starts writing and illustrating natural history books about the animals in the marsh where she lives, the seashells, the seabirds, and such. Owens wonderfully details the marsh, the marsh life, and what it's like to live in an area where there's more water than land, 
and where most people travel by boat. I like that type of place. When I was young, I'd visit most of my friends by rowboat, occasionally by bike, but it was one of those places where a five or 10 minute boat ride, rowing ride, might take 20 or 30 minutes to do by car and well over an hour to do by bike. So I like that idea of traveling so much by water and that's a big part of where the crawdads sing. It's a story about life on the water. There's lots of human drama, love, mystery, romance, murder, and that small town gossip setting where everyone knows everyone else's business. But it's a great book to use as the end of this 19 listing for COVID-19. For this group of books, there have been four nonfiction and five fiction in a balance of new and old. I mentioned in the first installment of this series that I didn't find any poetry for the list. So as a little lanyap or extra, I wanted to close with a poem by Pablo Neruda, The Sea. But before that, here's a run through of the books I've mentioned today. Prince of Tides by Pat Conroy, Remarkable Creatures by Tracy Sevalier, Sea Change by Sylvia Earle, Shipping News by Anne Prox, Song for the Blue Ocean by Carl Safina, The Travis McGee Series by John MacDonald, Two Years Before the Mast by William Henry Dana, Waves and Beaches by Willard Bascom, and then Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. The books from the earlier Shorewards podcast were Sue Casey's books, The Devil's Teeth and The Wave in Pursuit of the Rogues, Circe by Madeline Miller, Endurance, the one I mentioned was by Carolyn Alexander because of the great, great photographs she has, but there are several other books also called Endurance about Shackleton's voyage, expedition, adventure. I also mentioned the Storied Ice by Joan Booth as part of that Antarctic history story. There's also Floating Coast by Bathsheba DeMuth, Gifts from the Sea by Anne Morrow Lindbergh, pretty much anything by Carl Hyacinth, but I mentioned the tourist season and stormy weather as two that I especially remember. The Hungry Sea by Linda Greenlaw, Books by Kim Nunn, which is that Surfing Noir. The books I mentioned were Dog of Winter and Tapping the Source. Then Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. And finally, The Perfect Storm by Sebastian Unger. Now that little langyap of the sea by Pablo Neruda. I need the sea because it teaches me. I don't know if I learn music or awareness if it's a single wave or its vast existence, or only its harsh voice or its shining suggestion of fishes and ships. The fact is that until I fall asleep in some magnetic way, I move in the university of the waves. It's not simply the shells crushed as if some shivering planet were giving signs of its gradual death. No, I reconstruct the day out of a fragment the stalactite from a sliver of salt, and the great God out of a spoonful. What it taught me before I keep, its air, ceaseless wind, water, and sand. 
It seems a small thing for a young man to have come here to live with his own fire. Nevertheless, the pulse that rose and fell in its abyss, the cracking of the blue cold, the gradual wearing away of the star, the soft unfolding of the wave, squandering snow with its foam, the quiet power out there, sure as a, a stone shrine in the depths, replaced my world in which were growing stubborn sorrow, gathering oblivion, and my life changed suddenly, and I became part of its pure movement. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Shorewords. It's been a pleasure being with you today. I hope that you've enjoyed my list of 19 books, or my quasi-list of 19 opportunities for reading during this time of COVID-19. I hope you're safe, sheltering in place if that's what your state is still requesting and suggesting. Please send me any suggestions you have for books, and I'd love to hear from you with your coastal stories, coastal books. And until next time, keep reading, keep enjoying the coast. Goodbye.